I believe it was last night. Was that lady here that sang last night? No, she's not here, but she sang last night and gave me a CD of their singing. I listened to that on the way uh, here tonight. That was a blessing. And uh, I just appreciate the kindness of God's people. In Ephesians chapter 3, the Bible said, beginning in verse 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which has given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power. You know what? I should be done, but I'm going to read a little more. Unto me, it's so good, I can't, I'm having a hard time stopping. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world, or from the beginning of the world, hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. We'll stop there. And really, I'm interested just in verse 1, but it was so good I had a hard time stopping. I'm interested in this verse. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. I want to preach out of this verse, and I want to preach a little while tonight. I'm going to pray, and then I want to preach on the kind of servant the Lord uses. The kind of servant the Lord uses. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for loving us. You have been so much better to us than we deserve. Lord, you have done exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Lord, you've forgiven our sins. You've washed us clean. You've made us your own children. You've given us an inheritance undefiled and Fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us. Lord, you've given us life and you've given it to us more abundantly. You've rescued us from the fowler's snare. (laughs) The snare is broken and we are escaped. Lord, you've just been good to us. You're a good Lord and a sweet Savior and a precious God. We don't deserve you, but we're glad that you're our God and that we're your children. I pray you'll help us now in the next few moments. And I pray, Lord, you get glory unto yourself. And I pray you help your people. And I pray you'd help us to be the kind of servants that you want. Help us now in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When we come to the book of Ephesians, Paul likes to use this word mystery or mysteries. And he'll deal with them in this passage and in this book, I think I 
wrote down 20 times in the New Testament and six times in the book of Ephesians, the mysteries will be mentioned. Now, a mystery in the Bible is not something that God wants you to find clues to and figure out. You have a mystery novel or you might have saw a mystery movie or some sort of thing or played a mystery game and somebody drop a little hint here and a little hint there and you try and put it all together and figure out what it means. That's not what a mystery is in the Bible. In the Bible, a mystery is something that has been covered and God will uncover it when the time is right according to His plan. What interests me about the mysteries is that God, Paul tells us in this passage that God chose him to reveal or be the revealer of these mysteries that had been covered. So God used Paul. I'll mention a couple mysteries by way of introduction. And all three of these really are parts of the same mystery. But Paul will talk about what I like to call the gathering mystery. He'll talk about how that God will... Uh, well, let me read it to you. In Ephesians 1.9, Having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him. This is the mystery, I call it the gathering mystery, and it is a mathematical mystery. And here's what I mean by that. When he said gather together in Christ, if you study that language, it means to sum up. And I thought about this. If we took a blackboard, I know you can explain to your teenagers what a blackboard means when you get home. But if you had a blackboard and you had numbers on it, a whole bunch of numbers, and they're just lined up, and you'd look at it and you'd say, well, it doesn't mean a whole lot. But if you put a line underneath those numbers and you add them up, you get a sum. Now, when you've got the sum, all those numbers now have meaning. They all are part of something. When Paul tells us that God gathered everything in Christ, what he's saying is he summed up everything in Christ. And what he's saying is without Christ, nothing makes any sense. If you don't know Jesus, nothing lines up. Life has no purpose. But when you know the Lord, everything fits together and everything falls in place. It is the gathering mystery. Then he will also mention the great mystery in chapter 5. He'll speak about the husband and the wife. You're familiar with the verses. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Wives, be sub and gave himself for it. Wives, be subject unto your own husbands as the church is subject unto Christ. You know the verses there. But in Ephesians 5, he'll say this, but this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. He calls it a great mystery. It is the matrimonial mystery. And it is a reminder that you and I are espoused as chaste virgins unto Christ. We are, we are fiancéed. Amen. I am, you're looking tonight at the blushing bride. Hallelujah. And he's the groom. And there's a wedding coming down the, down the road. Then there is the gospel mystery. Paul will mention it in chapter six. He'll say, as for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. I call this, I call this the gospel ministry the, or mystery, the membership mystery. It is a dual fellowship. It is what the book, really what all of these mysteries fall, the heading they fall under, that God will take the Jew and the Gentile and make of them one new thing, the church. 
the Jew, give none offense to the Jew, nor to the Gentile, nor the church of God. We were talking about this at supper time. You get those three mixed up, you are messed up in your theology. Amen. The church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church, but it's the gospel ministry. But I said all that to say this. When God wanted to reveal these to us, Paul says he chose him. God chose Saul to be the servant of the vehicle, if you will, by how he was going to reveal these mysteries to you and I. So I'm looking at Paul and I'm thinking God looked at him as a chosen vessel. God chose him as a servant for a special purpose. And I think to myself, I want to be a servant of the Lord. So if I want to be a servant of the Lord, if I want to be used by God, then the way I can go about that, the way I can make sure that I'm a vessel fit to be used is find somebody who was used of God, see what they're like and emulate them. Now, I'm not suggesting tonight that God is going to use you or I to give some special revelation. We have all the revelation we need right here in the Word of God. I'm not, I'm not looking for any new prophets. Are you listening now? I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about being a servant of the Lord. I'm talking about being used of God to fulfill the purpose of God in this world. And Paul was used in that way. And I want to be used in that way. And I hope you want to be used in that way tonight. And if you do, maybe we'll find something here that will help us. There are three things about Paul that are revealed to us in this verse. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1. I want you to notice them with me. He says this first. For this cause I, Paul. Now the first thing I notice in this verse is the name that Paul is going by. He said for this cause I, Paul. But you know Paul was not always named Paul. He was named Saul at one time. The Bible tells us in Acts 13, 9, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes upon him. So when I look at this man who had a name Saul, that was his old name, he now has a new name, that name is Paul. And what it signifies is there has been a transformation in the life of this man. I'm going to call it tonight what it was, a supernatural transformation in the life of Saul. And I want to say to you tonight, if you want to be used of God, then you must have experienced a supernatural transformation. I'm talking about passing from death unto life. I'm talking about becoming a new creature. Here's the way Paul put it. He said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Uh, you know, it's not enough just to be a member of a church and join the church. I had an old preacher one time. I say an old preacher. I don't mean old in the sense of years, but uh, way back because I'm getting old and everything that happened to me seemed like it happened in old times. Now, did you ever notice when you get old, everything that happens reminds you of something else that happened? That's just the way it works, isn't it? But that preacher used to say this. He said, you can put a kitten in a bread basket, but it won't make him a biscuit. And you could put a sinner in a church congregation, but it won't make him a saint. You listen now. You're going to have to have more than church membership. You're going to have to have more than baptism. My old friend Brother Kelly used to say, if you didn't get saved, all you did was go down a wet sinner or a dry sinner and come up a wet sinner. He said, if I believed in baptismal regeneration, I wouldn't sing at the cross at the cross where I first saw the light. I'd sing at the pool at the pool where I first got dunked. But I'm going to tell you, friend, 
baptism does not wash away sins. It never saved anybody. Had a fellow tell me one time, said, you got to go get baptized because it'll wash your sins away. Well, the question that comes to my mind then is why did Jesus get baptized? He had no sin. Remember what Peter said? Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Remember what Pilate said? I find no, I'm going to get to the message in a minute. Just hang on. He said, I find no fault in him. Remember what God the Father said? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then in another gospel, he said, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so there was no sin in Jesus. So why did he get baptized? Now listen to me. Jesus got baptized to identify with you and I. To fulfill all righteousness. He identified with you and I. I never forget. Here here I go again. Years ago, Dr. Roy Goodson was preaching a meeting in Cocoa Beach, Florida. And I was in that meeting. And he talked about that dove. Now this isn't in the message. I'll throw it in. won't charge you any extra. Okay. He talked about that dove that Noah sent out of the ark. And he said that dove went out and he found no place to rest the sole of his feet. And so he said, they sent out a raven and the raven lighted on those dead corpses. And the dove is a picture of the Holy Ghost and the new nature which the Holy Ghost imparts. And the raven's a picture of the old nature. And the old nature likes corrupt and dead things, but the new nature doesn't want anything to do with corruption. And they sent that dove out and he came back, sent him out. Finally they sent him out and he never came back. And Dr. Goodson said, wonder where that, wonder where that dove went. Here's what he said. He said that dove was looking for some place to rest his feet where there was no corruption. He flew over old men and the good men in the Old Testament, men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and they were good men, Malachi and Habakkuk and Hosea and Amos, and they were good men, but every one of them had corruption. But he said that dove got to flying over the River Jordan one day. Now the River Jordan's a typical river. Starts out pure, runs down, gets dirtier and dirtier, ends up in the Dead Sea. It's a picture of mankind which started the innocency in the garden and then sin and waxes worse and worse. That's what the Bible said. Evil men shall wax worse and worse. Somebody said, preach you believe in evolution? No, but I believe in de-evolution. Mankind, mankind's not getting better. And so here comes Jesus one day. He goes down in the river Jordan. He is identifying with mankind. And when he comes up out of the water, that Holy Ghost dove that's been looking for some place where there's no corruption, some place where there's no sin, looks down and sees Jesus coming out of that water. And so there he is, there he is, and rested upon him. I'm just saying to you, baptism, Jesus got baptized to identify with us. You say, oh, preacher, why do we get baptized? Same reason, to identify with Him. It's a testimony. It's to let the world know that we've been born again. So, I'm just saying to you, you got to have more than baptism. Paul said, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. He said in this book of Ephesians, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. I'm saying to you, friend, if you're going to be used of God, you must have experienced a supernatural transformation. Now remember, he was Saul, but now he's Paul. 
Let's just think about the transformation that took place in his life. I read in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, at the death of Stephen, the Bible says this about Saul. And Saul was consenting unto his death. Some believe that Saul was the prosecuting attorney because they laid Stephen, they laid Stephen, or they laid their coats at Saul's feet. I don't know if that's true or not, but the Bible plainly says he consented. He was for it. He was in on it. He consented to the death of Stephen. That's when he was Saul. But then he became Paul. And let me remind you what it says in 2 Timothy. Paul now says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished my course. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. When he was Saul, he was consenting unto the death of of Stephen. But when he became Paul, he was consenting unto his own death. He wanted to see Stephen die for preaching the Word of God. But when he had that supernatural transformation, he said of himself, I'm willing to die for the cause of Christ. He was transformed from hating the man of God to loving, sacrificing himself for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only in his consenting, I see this transformation in these verses. In Acts chapter 3, or 8, verse 3, the Bible said, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Now here's what Saul did. He went into those houses. Now I'm not sure. I'm thinking about this business of hailing men and women. I don't know if it means that he went in and pretended to be something that he wasn't so that he could find out what they were. And whenever he found, went into a house and he found a Christian, he hauled them off to jail. That's what he did. He wanted to destroy them. But listen to this verse, Acts chapter 16. You remember Paul and Silas are in the prison house. They're in the stocks and the bonds. They're in the stocks <laughs> in that in that prison. They were in a different kind of stocks that most Christians are in now. And they were there in that prison and at midnight they sang praises unto God and uh, the Bible said there was an earthquake come. It was a supernatural and selective earthquake. Uh, none of the walls came down. None of the ceilings came down. None of, none of, not one portion of the roof came down but every chain fell off and every door was open. It was a supernatural earthquake. And that that uh, that that jailer considering or, or believing that everybody had fled was going to kill himself. You remember uh, Paul, he hollered out to him and said, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for a light and he sprang in and he said to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now remember, last time we read about Paul going into a house, he was Saul and he was going in there to destroy people. But here's what the scripture says in Acts 16, 32. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. You want to talk about a transformation. Saul went into every house to destroy everybody that he could. But Paul went into the house to tell everybody in there about the Lord Jesus that they might have eternal life. We've got a changed man here. I think about this in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. That's what Saul did. He used letters to destroy. He used letters to ruin families. He used letters to hinder the cause of Christ. But you know what happened after he became Paul, don't you? Let me read you this verse. 
Revelation 6.11. You see how large a letter I've written unto you in mine own hand. 2 Corinthians 2. He said, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. Now wait a minute. Saul was looking for letters to destroy the work of God and the people of God. But he's had a supernatural transformation. And now Paul is writing letters uh, to the Christian. We're reading out of one of them tonight. How much have you been helped and encouraged uh, and instructed uh, by the Word of God that Paul wrote, wrote those letters? That's the transformed man. Here's what Saul, Acts chapter 9 and verse 2. He desired as him letters to Damascus of the synagogues. Now listen, that if you found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Paul was interested in putting people in chains, dragging them off. Then he got saved. In Acts chapter 20, he's talking to the Ephesian elders. Here's what he said. And now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither account I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now listen to me. Here's my point. When we look at Saul's life, then he became Paul. It looks like everything that was going on in Saul's life has been absolutely rearranged. It's been turned upside down. Everything that was detrimental has become helpful. The things that he was doing to destroy the church have now been turned around and he's doing things to help the church. He has had a supernatural transformation. And if you've ever been born again, you've had one too. A supernatural transformation. The things you used to love, you don't love anymore. And the things you used to hate, you now love. If you've really been born again, there has been a resurrection in your life. You have been transformed from Saul to Paul. If you and I are going to be used of God, we must have a supernatural transformation. Here's the way Jesus said it. You must be born again. You must be. Have you been born again? You say, well, preacher, I joined up. No, I didn't ask you that. You say, well, preacher, I got dunked. No, I didn't ask you that. You say, well, preacher, I turned over a new leaf. I didn't ask you that. I ask you, have you passed from death unto life? Was there a time in your life when the sweet Holy Ghost of God brought you under conviction and showed you your need of Christ and you repented? You said, preacher, what do you mean repent? You took God's side against your side. You took God's side against your side. And you repented and believed the gospel. Put your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. And if you did, hallelujah, you are a new creature in Christ. You have had a supernatural transformation. Have you been transformed? One preacher, one old preacher put it this way. He said, if you is what you were, you ain't. But if God has done a work in your life, if you've been born again, there's been change in you. There's been a resurrection. God has, cha has changed and is continuing to change your appetites, your ambitions. Amen. He's changed your life. I remember one day I, I was preaching up in, uh, let me think about where I was. I was in Mount Zion Baptist Church in Butler, Pennsylvania. And I was standing at the back door. People were coming by and they were shaking hands. And I was thanking them for coming to the service. And sometimes they'd say this or that. But this fella, 
grabbed my hand and shook it and he looked at me and he said, just like this, he said, 30 years, preacher! 30 years! I said, I thought he's talking about how long the sermon went. I said, I said, 30 years! He said, 30 years since these lips have tasted a drop of liquor. You know what happened to him? He had a supernatural transformation. Amen. And such were some of you. But now you're washed. Now you're sanctified. You're justified. Thank God. God made a difference when we got born again. Hadn't been saved. So preacher, I just live in the way I always live. I'd check up if I were you. I'm the same as I always was. I'd check up if I was you. Preacher, I still do the same things I always did. I still love the same things I always loved. I still sneak around. I said, I'd check up if I was you. I'd examine myself if I were you. Because when Jesus comes and changes your life, there's a difference. You say, well, preacher, I was never a drunkard. No, but you was always a rebel. You were always a sinner. Say, well, preacher, I got saved when I was five. I never drank. I never smoked. No, but you was a rebel. Yes, dear. You were a rebel. You had foolishness in your heart and wickedness in your heart. You were like your federal head, Adam, and you needed to be resurrected to newness of life. And you could be four years old or five years old or six years old. I don't, I, it doesn't matter to me when you got saved. If you got saved, there was an evident change in your life. Amen. Paul's had a supernatural transformation. Have you? Not only in this verse do we find, I think, implied this supernatural transformation. But we find something else that is important in the in the servant that God will use, and that is a spiritual perception. Now watch what Paul said. He says something unusual here. For this cause I, Paul, now watch this, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now that's an odd thing. Paul is in prison. But if we were to look at it just from man's point of view and a human point of view, logically we would say, Paul, Jesus Christ didn't put you in prison. The Jews put you in prison. They're the ones that accused you. And the Romans are the ones that bound you. Paul said, no, you're not looking at this right. You're looking at the immediate. You're not looking at the eternal. You're looking at what is the apparent cause, but you're not looking at the true cause. He said, here I am a prisoner. I'm not a prisoner of the Jews. I'm not a prisoner of the Romans. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. You know what Paul is doing? He has the spiritual perception to look past the immediate and see the eternal. He sees the hand of God. You know, if we want to be used of God, if we want to be servants of the Lord, we must learn to look past the temporal and see the eternal. We must learn to look past what seems to be an immediate cause and see the hand of God. I'm glad there is an unseen hand. I do believe tonight in a sovereign God. I believe He's working things out behind the scene and I trust Him. Do you trust Him tonight? And I just, I'm thinking about Paul. We say, Paul, who locked you up there? Who put those bonds on? He said, well, I know who you think did it, but he said, God has a purpose and a plan in my bonds. Paul will talk about being a prisoner. I wrote it down here somewhere. I think ten different times. Five times he calls himself a prisoner. Ten times he speaks of his bonds. He says in Ephesians 4, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. In Ephesians 6, I am an ambassador 
in bonds. I like that little phrase, an ambassador in bonds. You, you know, they tell me that for part of the time, at least part of the time, that Paul was in jail when he's in prison, he would be he would be uh, chained to a Roman soldier. There'd be a Roman soldier, not the same one. They'd come in shifts. But Roman soldier would be chained to Paul 24 hours a day. Now, can you imagine being a lost Roman soldier chained to the Apostle Paul? Can you just imagine standing there listening to Paul pray? Listen to Paul talk about the Lord. Maybe that's why he would later say, the saints in Caesar's household salute you. How do you think them saints got there? Probably from the prison where Paul was preaching to them and talking to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not one to be closed mouth about Jesus. So Paul is looking at it. And he says in also in the book of Philippians how that his bonds have fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel. You know why we get upset with the trouble we have? We get discouraged with the trouble we have. All we can see is the immediate. Do you remember when Jacob in the Old Testament sent his boys down to Egypt to get corn? Those boys had sold Joseph into slavery. They thought they'd never see him again. They didn't know he was now the Lord of that country. And they went down there to buy corn and Joseph recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. And uh, the Bible said he spake roughly unto them. He said, ye are spies. You've come to spy out the land. You've come to see the land. And they kept they kept objecting to that. They said, we're not spies. We be true men. Uh, we be uh, uh, brethren. And they said, uh, the youngest is at home and one of our brethren is not. They didn't know they was talking to that one right there. And so he was a little rough with them. He, was, he wasn't trying to get revenge. He wasn't trying to get even. If you'll study the passage, he's trying to bring them to the place of repentance. And that's exactly what it did. And so finally he put Simeon in the prison and sent them home and said, don't you come back without your little brother. Do you remember what they said when they got back to Jacob? They said the Lord of that country spake roughly unto us. He took us for spies. And basically they said he told us not to come back. He kept Simeon and told us not to come back unless we bring Benjamin. And here was Jacob's response. He said, my son shall not go down with you. So I'm not going to let him go. And then he said this. He looked at those boys and he said, me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not. And Simeon is not. And you will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. You know what Jacob's problem was? He couldn't look past the immediate. Not a one of those things were against him. All those things were for him. Joseph will say this. He said, you meant it unto evil, but God meant it unto good. He said he sent me beforehand, sent me ahead of you, that many lives would be saved. What was Joseph doing? He was looking at the, he was looking at this thing in an eternal sense. He was looking at the hand of God. By the way, I don't have time to preach this, but if you go back and look in Genesis and read about Joseph, you'll keep finding him mentioning God. When he's in trouble, when he's in temptation, even when he's raised up uh, in the glory, he just keeps talking about God. You know what Joseph did? He kept his eyes on the Lord. And because he kept his eyes on the Lord, he was used. Jacob has his eyes off the Lord and he thinks everything going on is against him when really it's all for him. But he made this statement. He looked at them boys and he said, Me have ye bereaved of my children. He said, This is your fault. That's what he's telling them boys. He said, This is your fault. This is your fault. 
He couldn't see past that. Look at me. He said, Preacher, I'm going through the trial. I'm going through trouble. I know if you want to fault somebody. And what we'll do is we'll look at one another. And we'll say, he's at fault. Or she's at fault. Let's remember what Paul said. Paul said, I'm a prisoner. But I'm not a prisoner of the Romans. I could blame the Romans. I'm not a prisoner of the Jews. I could blame the Jews. He said, I'm looking past them. I'm seeing that unseen hand working around in the background. And I know that what I'm going through is going to fall out to the furtherance of the gospel. It's going to give glory to God. And I'm saying to you, friend, if you and I are going to be used of God, we must learn to look past the immediate and see the eternal. We must look past the hand of men and see the hand of God. We must look past it and say, God has something in mind. God's wanting to do something here. And He's wanting to use me. And it may be... Can I? Let me, I'm thinking about this right now. I'm thinking about when God brought Israel out of Egypt and He brought them to the Red Sea. And when they got to the Red Sea, you read your Bible, they were in a peck of trouble. Pharaoh and his army was behind. The Red Sea was in front. On the other side of the Red Sea were the Moabites and some other armies that were going to come and destroy them. And if you read the book of Psalms, you find out there was a there was something. I can't explain what it was, but it was named Leviathan. You read about it also in Proverbs. It was in the midst of the sea waiting on them. Uh, and so here they are. They're in trouble. And God parts the Red Sea. God makes Leviathan their meat. God drowns the Egyptian army. God makes the... The psalmist said God made the hills to skip like lambs and it scared those Moabites until their knees knocked together and they ran away and God brought them through that Red Sea. And you say, preacher, what was that all about? Well, I'm sure it was about a lot of things. I'm sure there's several things we could learn from that. But I'm reminded of this. When they got across that Red Sea and they got to the Promised Land, there's a city named Jericho and they sent two spies in there and those spies met this woman named Rahab. She was a harlot woman. You say, preacher, what does that mean? One one fellow who was a little bit, he was troubled by by the word harlot. He said, "Well, it must mean an innkeeper." No, it comes from it comes from the same word where we get the word pornography. It, it, she was a prostitute, a harlot, and she was an immoral woman. But you know what? When those spies came in, she hit them. You remember what she said? She said, "We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you, and what He did to the two kings, Sihon and Og, on the other side Jordan." And when we heard it, our, our hearts melted. There was no more strength left in us. And she said this, and I know that your God is God in heaven and God on earth. Would you listen to me a moment? Do you think that it would be beyond God to take a whole nation and put them in trouble at the Red Sea because He wanted to save one little harlot girl down there in Jericho? No. Knowing how God loves sinners, I don't think that'd be beyond God. And I don't think it'd be beyond God for you and I to have trouble and have difficulty so that somehow we might get the gospel to someone who otherwise might never hear it. I was preaching in Pennsylvania one day in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. And I, I don't usually sit on the platform. Usually my family's with me and I sit with them. But the pastor asked me to sit on the platform. So I'm sitting up here on the platform. And the the song leader would get up to start the service and he'd say, let's stand and turn to page so-and-so. And we all stood, but there's one fellow over here. He never would stand up. He's in about the third row over here on the side. And no matter what was going on, if we were standing to pray, if we were standing for the offering, if we were standing to sing, if we were standing to dismiss, if we are standing to read the Bible, no matter what went on, he never would stand up. 
And I was always taught, and sometimes I, sometime I forget it, sometimes I'm not what I should be, but I was always taught that if a lady's talking to you, you ought to stand up. I was always taught that if an older man comes to you, an older lady comes to talk to you, you ought to stand up out of reverence and respect. And I'm just going to be honest with you, it bothered me. But that fellow wouldn't stand up for anything, not for anything. And that went on two or three nights. And so finally one night we had a handshake and we hadn't done it the rest of the week. But that night we had a handshake and everybody stand up, shaking hands. He's still sitting there. So I went over where he was and I held my hand out to him. He's still sitting down. I said, how you doing, sir? And he said, better. I thought, better. I looked at him. I said, better. He said, yes, sir. He said, I'm doing better. He said, I've been in the hospital. I can't remember how long he said. I think he said it was months, like two or three months he'd been in the hospital. And I said, well, and of course I felt bad because of what I'd been thinking. Because the next thing he said to me was, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but I have a hard time standing up. Well, I just kept my mouth shut. And I said to him, I'm sorry you're in the hospital. And here's what he said. He said, well, I didn't want to go. But he said, I led several nurses to Christ while I was in the hospital. Now, I was already under conviction because of what I've been thinking. And then I thought to myself, if I was laying flat on my back in the hospital in pain, would I be calling for morphine and hollering for a shot? Or would I be thinking about a nurse's soul? But you know what that fellow did? He looked past the immediate. He saw the eternal. If God could just help us. When we go through the trial and we're like Paul and feel like we've become a prisoner in some way to some circumstance, if we could just look beyond it and say, you know what? There's an unseen hand here. God working behind the scenes. God wants to save somebody. Maybe He wants to use me and that's why I'm in the prison. That's why I'm bound. That's why, why, that's why all this is going on. Because God has a purpose and a plan. You believe God is in charge? Amen. So we need to have a spiritual perception. Then, i got some more, but I need to go to the last one. Watch what else he said. For this cause, I, Paul, there's a supernatural transformation. The prisoner of Jesus Christ, there's a spiritual perception. Watch these last three words. For you Gentiles. I call this a selfless substitution. What Paul is saying here, I believe, is this. I'm willing to suffer whatever needs suffering if it'll, if it'll redound to the glory of God and the, and the spreading of the gospel and the Gentiles being saved. Paul said this. In 2 Corinthians, he's writing to the Corinthian church. He said, Behold, this third time ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours but you, for the children ought not to lay it for the parents, but the parents, <coughs> the parents for children. And then he said this. He said, But I will gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more that I love you, the less I be loved. Now think about that. Paul said, I'm willing to be spent for you. Whatever happened to selflessness. The selflessness is taught in the Bible. I'll tell you what happened to it. They started teaching in our schools this business. We use these words self-respect and self-esteem. And they started telling us 
they took the verse where Jesus said, love thy neighbor as thyself. And they started trying to tell us what that means is you can't love somebody else until you love yourself first. That's not what that verse means. What that verse means, what Jesus was saying is this. I know you. You're already in love with yourself. Try and love somebody else like you love yourself. You know, the Bible never warns us about low self-esteem. But it warns us against esteeming ourselves higher than we ought. And it exhorts us to esteem others better than ourselves. Are you listening now? But the world says, pamper yourself. Love yourself. You deserve better. Hey, look up here. Let me tell you what we deserve. Every one of us deserves to be in hell. I hear people say, well, it's not fair. This isn't fair. Do you want God to be fair with you? If I understand fair, it means I get what I deserve. I do not want God to be fair with me. I want God. I'm not praying for justice. I'm begging for mercy and for grace. But we're in this deal about loving self and lifting self. It was the lie of the garden. It, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. I believe what He was promising her was, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, you'll know what God knows and you get to decide instead of God. It's the lie of Eden. It's the lie of self-esteem. It's the lie of the end time. When that Antichrist will sit down and proclaim himself to be God after denying all that there is that we know about God. This self-esteem movement. But Paul said, I'm doing what I'm doing, not for me. I'm doing what I'm doing for you. For you Gentiles. I will substitute myself. He said in Philippians, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Paul said, I rejoice in being a sacrifice. And he said, I read it to you already. I'm now ready to be offered. You know why Paul was ready to give himself in death? Because he had already given himself in his life to them for the cause of Christ. Let me read you something. Ann Judson, the pioneer missionary to Burma. She wrote of the kind of missionaries that were needed. She said, in encouraging young people to come out as missionaries, do use the greatest caution. One wrong-minded, obstinate person would ruin us. Humble, quiet, preserving men of sound, sterling character, with good accomplishment and some natural aptitude to acquire a language, men of amiable, yielding temper, willing to take the lowest place, men who live close to God, who are willing to suffer all things for Christ's sake without being proud of it. These are the kind of men we need. Selflessness. Not living for self. You know, when I was growing up, we used to do this little thing. I don't hear it much anymore, but we used to do this little thing. We'd say, they'd say, how do you spell joy? J-O-Y. Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. Maybe the reason we don't have much joy anymore is we forgot how to spell it. We thought the way to have joy was to put me first. Me first. I was getting ready to counsel. I was pastoring a church. 
I was getting ready to counsel a young couple they were going to get married. And so I never had done any marriage counseling. Never had been taught any of it. Didn't know the first thing about it. I'd been married for quite a while, but I didn't know the first thing about counseling somebody. So I got looking and I, I found in this bookstore, I found this great big whole package. Books and workbooks and charts. This whole thing is a 12-week course on premarital counseling. And I, I went to the church and said, I've never had any training on this and I've got to counsel <coughs> this young couple and I wonder if I could get this. Oh yeah, go get it. So I got it. Man, I, it came in the mail. I ordered I spread it out all over my desk. I was looking back and forth at all this stuff. I mean, it, it was wonderful. And I thought to myself, it's going to be the most happy, the happiest married couple in the world. I'm probably going to go into full-time counseling, premarital counseling, going to become famous. So I got looking at it real close. There was a workbook for the groom and a workbook for the bride. There was a workbook for the counselor. There were charts. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff. So I opened up this workbook for the groom and opened up the workbook for the bride. And the first thing I saw there was a pyramid. And it was called the Needs Pyramid. Now, I'd never heard of a Needs Pyramid. I'd heard of a Food Pyramid. I may have heard of Food Pyramid. Down there on the bottom, the wide stuff, the stuff that that you're supposed to eat all the time, like cauliflower and Brussels sprouts and asparagus. And up in that little, that little tight place in the top, just a little bit, that's hot fudge sundae and nanner pudding and chocolate pie. Yeah, I know about the needs pyramid. I never paid one bit of attention in my whole life. So I looked at the needs pyramid. Over here in the bride's book, down on the bottom, it said the first thing that has to happen is that the bride has to have her needs met before she can meet, meet the needs of her husband. And in the groom's book, it said the husband must have his needs met before he can meet the needs of the bride. Now, I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. And I figured out that if the groom could not meet the bride's needs until his were met, and if the bride couldn't meet the groom's needs until hers were met, I figured out wasn't nobody going to get any needs met on that day. Because if you put yourself first, that's an empty, hollow life. But if you put others first, like Paul did, then maybe you could say like Paul, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. Why was Paul so joyful? He learned how joy was spelled. He was selfless in his substitution. We've forgotten that today. That's why people will call the pastor and say, now pastor, we're thinking about coming to your church. What does your church have to offer us? Instead of calling the pastor and say, pastor, we'd like to find some place where we could be used of God. Is there something we could do over there where you're at? You hear the difference? Paul said, for you Gentiles. A fellow named Doug Neeland and his wife were trying to translate the Bible in the native language. And the language was for the Brazil, in Brazil, the Felino, I believe I'm pronouncing it right, the, the Fulnio Indians. So they went down 
and started living among the Indians. When they went down, the Indians didn't want much to do with them, and they called Doug the white man. Whenever anybody would bring him up, he'd say, yeah, that's that white man. Who is that there? That's that white man. Well, Doug began to learn the language, began to help them with, with medicine. And we began to give them medicine and help them. They started calling him the respectable white man. They said, who is that fella? He's the respectable white man. Then when he began to learn the language and learned where he could talk to him fluently in their own language, they started calling him the white Indian. So he's gone from the white man to the respectable white man to the white Indian. Then one day, some folks were visiting from another area, some Indians, and they came and Doug had found a young Indian boy who had seriously injured his foot. And they came upon Doug and he had that Indian boy and he was bandaging that foot and stitching up and bandaging. And the boy was covered with blood and Doug was covered with blood. And he was comforting the boy, helping the boy. And somebody said, who is that? And the boy's father said, this is the man that God sent to us. It was that selflessness. And from that day forward, he was known as the man that God has sent to us. I'd like to be used of God. But I can't be if my life is all about me and what I want and my dreams and my ambitions. But if I will say, Lord, I want my life to be about what you want and about others hearing the gospel. And I can be used of God. Let me give you a personal illustration. Years ago, it's been 40, it's almost 41 years now. I started out in the ministry. I started out as an evangelist traveling. I have a, a life's verse. My life's verse is Isaiah 40, 31. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall uh, they shall walk and not faint. But when I start out in the ministry, God gave me a ministry verse. Not my life's verse, but my ministry verse. I've had to go back to it and relearn it. I don't mean relearn what it said, but relearn what it means. It goes like this. Now it came to pass after the death of Moses. God spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun. Moses ministered. And the Lord said to me, if you will make yourself a servant to the servant, I will use you. Now you listen to me, and I'm talking about the grace of I know what I am and what I'm not. But I don't have I don't have a week in the coming years that's over. And listen now. I'm somewhere all the time preaching. I know what I am and what I'm not. But 
I believe God is using me because I've tried to make myself a servant to the man of God. And I'm saying to you tonight, if you want to be used of God, you're going to have to have a selfless substitution. I need to work on it just like you do. I'm not. You understand what I'm saying? I'm giving glory to God. Because Paul said, it's all Him. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And without Him, we're nothing. And I'm promising you tonight, if you will give yourself, put Him above yourself and others, God will use you. He'll use you. A selfless substitution. And all that is is being like Jesus. Because that's what He did. He gave Himself for us. I want you to bow your heads a moment. General Charles Gordon, this great man of God, loved the Lord, served God, did great work in China. England wanted to give him a, an award. He didn't want anything. Finally, after much argument, they talked him into taking a gold medal with an inscription on the back of it that told what he had done. When he died and they started going through his things, they couldn't find that gold medal. They looked everywhere. They couldn't find anywhere. When they got hold of his diary, they found this inscription. The only thing I had in this world that I value, I have now given to the Lord Jesus. And when they investigated, they found that during a famine, a time of great sickness in Manchester, he had sent that gold medal to be melted down and sold to buy bread for the sick. He said it's the only thing in this life that he had that he treasured. That's a selflessness used to help others. Would to God we become selfless in our Christian lives. Now, Father, you help us tonight. There may be somebody lost, somebody who's fooling themselves, somebody who's playing the game. They've never had a supernatural transformation. I pray tonight they might repent and believe the gospel. Then, Lord, those of us that are saved, help us to be usable in your hands tonight for the glory of Christ. Maybe they'd be a young person here tonight or a middle-aged person or an elderly person and say, Lord, I sure do want to be used of you. I sure you want you to use me, Lord. So we might just give ourselves unto thee to be used as you see fit. Help us tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We'll stand with our heads bowed. Our sister's going to play. We just keep our heads bowed unless you're going to come to the altar. Won't you come tonight? Bow the knee. Say, Lord, I sure would like to be used. I sure want you to have my life. I sure do want my life to bring you glory. Won't you come tonight while she plays?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of thy word tonight, Lord, the message and the messenger. Lord, most of all, for the ministration of the Holy Spirit in our midst tonight. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to walk in the strength of this truth, Lord. Let it not just be something that we pass by, but let it take root in our lives. And may it be a fundamental and foundational thing. Lord, this that we've heard tonight, it's it's not just merely fodder for spectators, Lord, but it's, it's a foundation for a servant. I pray that you'd help us to have a servant's heart. Lord, help us to take these truths to our heart. And may the Holy Spirit galvanize them within us that we might be made more like Christ. Lord, bless the remainder of our time together. Father, we love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Boy, wasn't that good tonight? Amen. Praise the Lord. I appreciate that good message. Appreciate our visitors being here. What a blessing to have you with us tonight. Hope that you'll come back and be with us. We know there's folks that have a home church, and we expect you to be there tomorrow night. And uh, and you say, well, what about the people at Walridge? Well, that's doubly true for them, Brother Ken. We doubly expect you to be in your home church if you're Walridge, all right? Uh, but we expect you to uh, to be at your home church tomorrow night. But come back and be with us Thursday night. We'd love to see you again. We'll be meeting tomorrow night at 7 and Thursday night at 7 o'clock as well. All right. Well, the other Toby, the better Toby, according to some, the uh, the Toby with less warrants out for it. That's that Toby. Toby Guerin is here and uh, with his wonderful family, and I appreciate him. He's my friend, and uh, he's a blessing to me. So it's rare I get to say this, but Brother Toby, would you close us in a word of prayer tonight?